Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another engaging episode of Inspiration Point. I'm Adam, and today, for the first time, I am on my own. I don't have a special guest for you. It's just me, uh, my thoughts, and what I'd like to share with you. Our show's about game design, particularly when it comes to role-playing games. Andrew and I like to talk a lot about Dungeons and & Dragons and our philosophies uh, surrounding game design. Uh, but we haven't talked too much about game design itself yet. A lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about come from a book called Fundamentals of Game Design by one Ernest Adams, a uh, professional designer uh, in the past. He worked for uh, Electronic Arts and uh, a few other companies. He's worked on uh, the, what's it called, the Dungeon Keeper uh, series. Uh, maybe one of these days I'll see if I can get an interview with him. I think, think that would be pretty cool. It was actually required reading for me uh, when I was in college, uh, where I met Andrew, my game design teacher, Dexter Chow, um, had shown me this book. He, like I say, he required it, and I, I read it, uh, at least uh, the first half, <laughs> roughly. The second half gets uh, very technical, and it, it's very much about video games, and that was the main focus that we were doing. But I think a lot of this can easily be applied to role-playing games. And so that's really going to be my attempt here is to talk about the science of game design and how we can apply it to our experience running role-playing games. As we become more interested in telling these compelling stories or these really sort of advanced dungeons, I think it's important to keep in mind what kind of engagement our players are looking for and how we can keep them interested and, and having fun. And, and these are things we've kind of talked around a bit in the past. But here I want to do a, a bit of a deep dive into general game design theory. So no, I think that's enough setup. Let's get started. So the, the first lesson that I go over is uh, what is a game, uh, which may seem a, a bit trite. I mean, I like to open up with this uh, Mark Twain quote because it makes me seem smart. But he says uh, something that really resonated with me that that I like to share. So that, that quote is, work consists of whatever a body or someone right is obliged to do. And play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. So in other words, the difference between work and play is whether or not you have to do it. And we've probably all felt that in, in some degree uh, in the past, right? And I think that one of the tricks here, when it comes to presenting tasks to players in, in any medium of game, they need to have options. They need to have their own sense of buy-in, right? It's one thing during a tutorial level to say, press X to jump, right? That's all totally fine. It's another thing to have players enter a dungeon and say, you have to kill this goblin. When you give them the options, of different ways to interact with that goblin, then the choice of kill the goblin becomes theirs. And we, by at least this definition, have created play as opposed to uh, creating obligation. And I think that a lot of times as designers, one of the things that we do is we create these limitations. And what that inadvertently does is cause our game play to feel like work. So the next thing that the Ernest Adams talks about 
is how we play and how it sort of evolves throughout our life. So in the beginning, when we're little children, we start with things like toys, right? So you have little plastic figures or whatever, and you interact with it in a different way than you would a game. So toys are objects and they have no rules of how to play with them or goals to achieve. Now, some of them might have a little bit more suggested as you as you get into uh, toys for like young young teens or something that, you know, maybe you you have the little launcher in their back and you click it and it shoots. Right. But for the most part, that can still be anything you want. Some toys model other objects which suggest how to play with it. Now, for instance, if you have a toy soldier, the idea is that you probably are having, you know, G.I. Joe or whatever run around and shoot at Cobra guys and uh, do some some daring do that sort of thing. If you have a, a baby doll, the idea is that you treat it like a baby. But certainly children do anything they want with these toys, with these objects. I can remember my youngest daughter taking a Halloween decoration. So not even a real toy, like a, this little plastic skeleton and putting it in the little toy stroller she had, locking it in place uh, and strolling it around the house, uh, being its its little mother and, you know, rocking him and other things like this. You know, certainly the, the, the skeleton had no <laughs> suggestion with it that this was uh, to be treated uh, and, and nurtured in such a way. Uh, but that was the way my my daughter had chosen to interact with it. And certainly one could take a baby doll and have it do ninja moves. That might actually be hilarious. You know, it's up to the kid was to what they want to do with it. Because the, the suggestion that the toys present um, are not rules. You know, think of, uh, you know, Dr. Evil Porkchop from uh, Toy Story. Uh, certainly meant to be uh, a piggy bank, right? But what does Andy do? Well, in, in, in the narrative that he creates, uh, he becomes this evil criminal sort of James Bond villain mastermind instead of just a piggy bank. And, and by the way, I, I used to totally do similar things uh, when I was a child. I had toys from uh, Ninja Turtles to X-Men to Transformers. And like I definitely had a, uh, a, a grab bag of different objects. But of course, they had crossover universes and they had to uh, all be on the same team good guys versus bad guys and uh you know i had at least for for my eight-year-old self you know fairly intricate overlapping storylines you know it was all uh in service to into the madness that it's all grown into now uh with with D. so the next level of play that that ernest adam ta- uh, talks about is uh the puzzle Right. So a puzzle is an object uh, with a distinct objective, which isn't to say you still couldn't treat it as a toy, uh, but at least by um, their design, they're meant to have a single objective. Uh, One rule which defines the goal and uh, they seldom have rules on obtaining uh, that objective. So one example, of course, is is the Rubik's Cube the Rubik's Cube. uh, You're supposed to line up all the colors or. You know, some people like to play with it and, and maybe do a uh, a pattern or something. Uh, the only real rule is you're not supposed to take it apart. You're supposed to just uh, twist the blocks around until it lines up just right. And smart people can do this. I've, I've never been able to, to do it. 
So uh, I've had uh, many students that have uh, passed through my doors and can do them quickly. So I assume those kids will be very successful in the future. That's what I know about Rubik's Cubes. Uh, we like to include puzzles in our games, and often they have limited uh, ways to complete them. And uh, that can create uh, a lot of fun for certain players and a lot of not fun f- like me <laughs> for other types. I am not a puzzle person. Um, they make me feel kind of dumb. Uh, I like to uh, uh, bash most of my problems or just roll my perception checks or use dialogue. I like social interactions. I like combat interactions. Puzzles don't usually provide those things for me. But a lot of people do like them. And so uh, I think one way to maybe improve puzzles, just, you know, and that's not what this episode is really about, but one way is to maybe perhaps create multiple methods of completing them, right? Two or three, some, some sort of, again, option or way to get there. Is there a way to solve this puzzle, um, you know, through option? Okay, so the third and sort of final expression of play is in the game. And the game includes both rules and an objective. Okay. So again, the toy, no objective, no rules. The puzzle, it has uh, no rules, but it has an objective. And then finally, we get to the game, rules and objectives. Which is strange about that is that it, in a way, it seems more limiting, right? Because now we're, we've added more definition to it. But we, um, as adults, we interface with games far more often than we do uh, with with toys or puzzles, perhaps, or at least people involved in this hobby. Uh, Games require pretending. Um, I suppose so do the toys, certainly. But games require us to enter into um, a sort of make-believe universe. And I'll I'll explain a little bit more uh, what I mean by that. And games also often require a uh, a lot of social cooperation. Maybe this is less true with, with video games, but um, certainly um, you have to have social cooperation when it comes to tabletop role-playing games, right? Without it, it's, it's pretty hollow. So the official definition that Ernest Adams offers regarding the definition of a game is a type of play activity conducted in the context of a pretended reality in which the participants try to achieve at least one arbitrary non-trivial goal by acting in accordance with rules. Okay. So that is a bit of a mouthful, but it, it covers actually a lot of really important aspects that come into the idea of, I am designing a game. I'm not just writing a story that my players are walking through, but I'm actually creating an engaging game. So It's an activity conducted in the context of a pretended reality. So that is super important. Whether or not we're doing a role-playing game or a video game or even a sport, there is a pretended reality. So you might say, well, what do you mean there's a pretended reality when it comes to sports, right? Like they don't pretend to be anything. Uh, They're just, you know, actually athletes. They don't have to pretend. Uh, They run around and they accomplish their goals, right? Well, the pretended reality that a football player, for instance, has to engage in is that crossing the football over the goal line matters, right? 
they, he has to respect the laws of the game. He has to pretend that those matter, that there is such a thing as a foul or being out of bounds or whatever. You know, these are all uh, things that exist in sports. Uh, the idea of downs or uh, uh, points themselves, right? They all have to do with with engaging in that pre- pretended reality, if you will. Okay, but enough about sports. So certainly when it comes to to games like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, we really do engage in a more explicit way with this idea of pretending. So one thing that that my game design teacher taught me, and I think he got this from the, the book as well, was that th- some of the most popular games that exist out there are based on simple games that you played as a child. So, for instance, you know, th- just take a moment and think of of games you've played. So you've probably thought of like tag or hide and seek or capture the flag, you know, uh, whatever it is. Right. And, you know, even when it comes to like big budget, big studio video games, you know, think about Call of Duty. I mean, essentially we're playing tag. All right. It's more expensive. It's more complicated. There's lots of <laughs> graphics and, and artwork that goes into it. But ultimately, uh, yeah, we're kind of playing tag. Right. When you play that stealth game, I mean, it's very similar to to games like hide and seek. All right. We've all pretended to do some kind of war, you know, or play capture the flag or whatever when it comes to these these role playing games. And, you know, I think about where the desire for playing a role playing game comes from. And again, I, I think it does come back to, to childhood a little bit. You know, when you're a kid, you're running around the playground and you know, you're playing good guys versus bad guys, you know, pick your, your genre. Right. And, you know, you run around and you say, you know, let's say it's, you're, you're playing cops and robbers or something. Right. And the cops says, bang, bang, I shot you. Right. And what, what is the, what does the robber say? He says, no, you didn't. Right. And then there's a big argument about whether or not you really had a force field. So, you know, one thing that we're, we're essentially doing in these role-playing games is adding numbers so that we know whether or not you hit. Right. We also, you know, have rules about how strong or intelligent or social uh, your character is. They have a limited power according to their experience. There's lots of context about what's happening in the environment and the world and the sort of motivation of your character. And it builds on and on and on and on. But there is this sort of fundamental connection to to our childhood practices. And so I, I would say I would challenge you, perhaps, that as you go in to design your next session, uh, ask if there are any childlike elements here. Um, one game that my wife teases me that I that I enjoy uh, is dress up. So uh, whenever I play a like a highfalutin role playing game like Mass Effect or Dragon Age or something like that, I do like to spend a little bit of time <laughs> with my character creator. And I like to get the face just right, which is uh, particularly frustrating in a game like Skyrim, where you immediately put on a helmet. But uh, I still do enjoy putting a little bit of time into those faces. I like to get gear that matches or looks cool. Sometimes I will give up that upgrade if it doesn't go with the rest of the outfit or look cool enough, uh, which is something uh, my wife would always uh, scoff at me at. We used to play World of Warcraft together, so my character was always matchy-matchy, and hers was always, uh, uh, I used to say, looks like a bag of Skittles. 
because it would be very colorful, mismatched, but it would also be more optimized than my gear. So we all interact with it in ways we do. But, you know, when you're a child, you know, you play games like dress up. You want to look interesting. You want to put on that hat and see what you look like. So this is another thing that the games carry, uh, carry with you. So, so again, look at your dungeon and go, well, what, what games are we playing here? What, at, like at a, the most fundamental basic level, you know, does that exist? And if it doesn't exist, you know, uh, maybe think about that. So essential elements of a game, uh, are in four pieces. They are play, pretending goal and rules. And I'll talk about each of those. So first of all, play, play is a participatory form of entertainment. You affect the outcome. You make choices and you have freedom to act constrained by rules. So those are all extremely important when it comes to designing our NPC interactions, dungeons, encounters, wilderness travel. How much are the players getting to participate? Are they being able to participate to an equal amount or something approaching it, at least according to what? Each of those players may desire some players in, do enjoy that background. Uh, but, you know, you just try to make sure everyone's represented. Um, but also, are are you driving that story? Are you narrating too much? Are you giving too much exposition? Are you limiting choices uh, in, in a more extreme way than is necessary? Try to get players into doing stuff as quickly as possible. But don't necessarily say you're in a tavern. What do you do? Because this leads to uh, too many choices, right? It leads to chaos. Even presenting things like the A, B, and perhaps C choice are a good focused way to create engagement where choices could be made fairly quickly. And we can move the plot along while still giving the player that sense of agency that is needed to separate they're feeling that they are playing a game versus doing a chore. They need to be able to affect the outcome. Now, we do a lot of gamesmanship as GMs. We sometimes create false choices. They save us time. They're not unintelligent things to do. But it is important that even if they are illusory, that we really do sell that illusion. Games need to feel real in that way. We need to see cause and effect. It's not enough to choose soup or salad. A soup has to have a different effect than salad does, or at least I need to perceive that it does. I need to be reminded of that choice. Speaking of which, they need to make choices, even more mundane ones. Whether or not you want to have a battle axe or a longsword really makes absolutely no difference in the game. In terms of statistics, they are essentially the same item in 5th edition, and yet they're both listed. Same thing for the halberd and the glaive. For all intents and purposes, they are the same item. I think one of them weighs slightly more. So what's the point? The point is, is that they have a choice, even if it's just an illusion. Essentially, most of the things that you do in this game are adding five or more to something that you're very good at, adding one or two to something you're kind of okay at and adding nothing to things that you, you know, aren't good at at all. Maybe even a negative on a rare occasion. Does that mean that those choices don't matter? Of course they matter because they, they create that pretended reality for your player 
to participate in in a way that is very real and important to them, at least real in that moment while they're engaged in that reality. Now, this freedom to act, it is restrained by rules. And the constraint, the constraining of rules can feel confining and dare I say constraining. However, they are fundamental. And it's not just to keep control of it for your sake. It actually makes the players happy uh, or happier as well. And they need to have a, a barrier of expectation. If you, if you tell them you can do anything, it's almost overwhelming, right? There's too many wrong decisions in that scenario. I really like to present my players with scenarios where there isn't a right or wrong choice. Sometimes you just don't have time for all this and you just need to say, listen, go to the goblin camp and fight the goblins. Fine. Better than nothing. But maybe there's more than one way to get into that camp. That's really important. So even if the rule is fight the goblins and goblins have X amount of HP and they have a certain armor class and they deal a certain amount of damage, there needs to at least be some choice in how I engage them in that battle. Right. So freedom to act constrained by rules. Don't let your players create chaos. This is something I see a lot of with brand new players, particularly brand new GMs who I have tossed in the deep end and told, hey, get working, get going. There's a lot for you to do. They get overwhelmed. So one of the first things they like to do is shift the responsibility to the players. So they say, uh, you're in a forest and you're walking around and um, what do you do? This is uh, this is not good enough, right? There's not enough constraint here because uh, then a player will go, well, I uh, I deal with something you didn't establish was even here, which then you have to decide whether or not you want to correct them or quickly make up something on the spot. And that can be difficult. Um, they might decide to cause trouble. Um Idle hands are the devil's playground when it comes to D&D. Even today with my students, I go to one of the tables. It's gone into disarray. One of the players with their sorcerer has burned down the tavern. They've caused death, right? And and damage. Okay. This usually stems this this idea of of the murder hobo often comes from too many options on the table. Um, because then you kind of feel like you're in like a GTA type situation. And also it's just something I see a lot of new players do. They're not quite used to the idea of cooperative play yet dealing with other people at the table, uh, particularly younger players, not to, you know, <laughs> sound like go full boomer here, but I will say that I do find the idea of cooperative play to be a little bit more alien to people who are a bit younger who have been raised more on video games than they have on uh things like uh, let's say board games or sports um because they haven't had to deal with as much social repercussion um and if they have there's been a, a distance from from someone being online um which is why I highly recommend getting back into couch co-op. I wish more uh, games would, would design for that. I really love that stuff. Oh, but I digress. So the second big topic is pretending. Again, pretending uh, participation in a pretended reality, assigning artificial significance to situation and events. And it brings up this concept because I, I won't talk about the other two that much because I already have. 
Um, but this concept of the magic circle, when we talk about when we enter a pretended reality together, when we make that that agreement as players and as designers, we agree that in a certain limited space that new rules apply. So when it comes to a game like soccer uh, or baseball or football or whatever, the magic circle is very clear. It is the boundaries of the play area, the field, right? Or the court if you're playing basketball. Outside, uh, the, the, the same uh, sort of game doesn't matter. Also, the time in which you play certainly matters. Right. When it comes to a game like D&D, um, you either have your battle mat with your minis or it all of the pre- pretended reality is happening in your own mind. And uh, in sharing that pretended reality with players in a way, you sort of enter this shared reality, the shared uh, set of of imaginary outcomes, which I think is really the magic of the game. Right. And and certainly. That also occurs even in uh, a grid-based scenario, right? And in a way, the, the pieces almost come to life in our minds. We see the animations uh, in our mind's eye, even as the uh, figurines stand still and remain in their places. One thing I like to do with this concept of the magic circle is I explicitly tell my players that the play area presented by the map, like if we're doing grid-based combat or I'm on Rule 20 or whatever, I really try to stress, and maybe this breaks the the suspension of disbelief a little bit, but I try to stress that the limitations that you see on the board are the magic circle. This is the place where the battle exists. Um, going outside those boundaries is not allowed. However, I also extend the courtesy of doing the same thing with my uh, with my monsters and my my NPCs. Right, they too cannot really exist outside of that that border once you have left the play area you cannot return to it is a is a simple rule now of course i have bad guys that maybe add on they run into the into the scene later something like that but they can't stand outside the boundary and shoot in they also can't leave the boundary um you know and be unable to be hit and then come back in the next round right obviously that would be that would be bad form that would be cheating so I simply ask my players, hey, I made this map. I made these boundaries. Please abide by them. And usually that is perfectly acceptable. It is very frustrating for a player to be told they're being hit from off screen when there was no visual indicator that that should be possible. The next big topic is uh, the goal, the objective. What am I supposed to do here? The DMG, by the way, uh, presents lots of great ideas for objectives. Most encounters seem to end in a fight to the death. Uh, fight to the death is actually not one of the things listed um, under encounter objectives. We we mainly have things like uh, rescuing someone or stopping a ritual or, or getting a certain item, whatever it is, we're trying to do something like that. And I think, you know, you might try to, to play with that goal in mind. At the very least, I like to do th- things where... The enemies fight until they think they're losing, in which case they almost always retreat if they're intelligent and aren't just some sort of like alien monster or something like that. That's just that just fights with reckless abandon until it falls over. It's just not a very engaging way to to win. Now, if that is an option among the 
steal the item and get out option among the rescue the hostage option among the you know stop the ritual whatever and players say you know what i want to go the extra mile and i just want to annihilate everyone here or i don't know how to interrupt the the ritual but if i kill everyone involved that'll probably do it right that that might be fine because again you give the players that choice in some games, uh, goals are endless, and you may even have an endless goal, right? Where the waves of enemies truly are endless, and standing your ground in, until they all die is just not going to happen. So you need to get in, get whatever you need, accomplish whatever immediate goal is required for the victory state, and then to leave, right? So that could happen in role-playing games, too. Goals can also be unachievable. Right. There can be things that, that they strive to always. And this is a place where where I think Mass Effect actually kind of failed. I think it would have been really bold. Maybe I've been dumb and you can disagree with me and that would be fine. I, I am definitely one of the people that was that was unhappy with the ending of, of Mass Effect 3, though I wasn't one of the people to actually do anything about it. Like I didn't write to anybody. I didn't you know, I didn't like. Uh, threaten anyone and by the way if anyone threatens anyone over a game that's obviously dumb okay so anyway i think it would have been great if there was just no way to stop the reapers right if like like no matter what you did the, the reapers just won but maybe a small pocket of people could escape it or something like that or maybe even that's impossible and it was literally a, just about how you lived and the death was just was just inevitable regardless. But does that mean that that journey is therefore pointless? You know, maybe not. Maybe that would have been a better examination than having three options that felt hollow. Right. Because it could have then been your choices are about how you live those last moments. Right. Or what your philosophy regarding the end is. And I think that would have been far more fascinating. Um, sometimes your goal could be to defeat the dragon in a role-playing game and that goal is simply not achievable yet right but we can do do other things in the meantime uh goals have to present non-trivial challenges we want to uh even when it comes to the bar scene you want to seem uh witty or funny or whatever so there's at least some kind of challenge there and obviously there's more explicit challenges like fighting dragons overcoming traps puzzles etc uh, typically with any of these goals, you want to have some sort of victory termination or loss condition. So, you know, how does the encounter end? What are, what are the conditions in which that can happen? If your encounter has multiple end, end states end conditions, I think that's a good idea. One thing I, I want to implement more and sometimes I forget is a time limit. Maybe nobody achieves their ultimate goal, but something happens that brings combat to an end. I think this can help alleviate how long combat can go in a role-playing game in a way that can narratively be interesting, right? You know, if you're on round 10 of combat and you're just slugging it out with, with enemies, that can get stale, right? I hate when I'm sitting around a table and I see a player yawn. It honestly makes me so upset. Um, it makes me upset at them a little bit, but it also makes me upset at me because then I feel like I did something wrong and, and they might just be tired. But I have seen players be disengaged and get bored and that sort of thing. And so keeping things moving, keeping things interesting and not just a slugfest, I think is a good way to go. 
And ultimately, there needs to be some sort of outcome or reward. Reward doesn't necessarily have to be good, guys, right? What we could really be talking about is consequence. And whether or not that consequence is good or bad, it's kind of secondary to whether or not you had a consequence. Um, if you punish players all the time, obviously, they're, they'll get tired of that. But that a punishment can sometimes occur might be a good thing. Players may not appreciate that in the moment or think that they want it. But if they know that it, that their choices matter, I think that that can can have a greater impact in the long run. So having said that, I would almost always give some kind of reward, even if there's a, a, a loss component to it. Right. Whether or not you got experience points or you got gold or you got an inspiration point or you got reputation points or honor or piety or whatever you want to get and give to a player or even just progressing in your relationship with one of the NPCs or gaining the respect of a fellow player at the cost of personal wealth or magical items, you know, is still a reward in, in and of itself. So in many ways, our choices are defined by those outcomes. And so Make sure that there are um, different things in your hands when you offer players your choices. So, you know, the, the last component uh, is this idea of rules. So, again, they can feel very limiting in some ways, but they're actually quite uh, freeing. They actually create a sense of, of drama, of limitation. It is the limits of our character that make us care about them that make us relate to them because we ourselves in our lives have lots of limitations. That's why the flaw on your character sheet is so important. That's why it's so important that you don't just have like straight 18s for your character. I really, as much as fun as it can be to play stat inflated characters, um, even if given the opportunity, I will often limit myself. Um, and uh, I really think that that's important to to having a rounded out character. There was really no reason for my most recent D&D character, my bard, to have 10 strength. I could have just rolled and rolled and rolled, but I preferred to stop. And maybe that's just for me. You play however is, is right for you. Uh, but rules um, are definitions and instructions that have meaning within the magic circle. And being able to, to harness the power of those rules and to live within their bounds creates a more meaningful and, and rich experience. If you've been with me so far in this uh, more lecture-filled episode, and listen, I give lectures. That's my that's my life, right? Um, first of all, thank you for for staying with me this long. But second of all, I want to encourage you to uh, check out more episodes of our show where I'm typically with Andrew. Uh, Check out more episodes of Inspiration Point on uh, inspirationpoint.buzzsprout.com or anywhere that you like to get your podcast. Also, please support us on patreon.com slash inspiration point. You can join us at the $1, $5, or $20 level, and there's various rewards for, for doing that. Even at the $1 level, you get to join our community that uh, is becoming filled more and more all the time with the various special guests that we've, that we've gained. And it really becomes a very interesting place with, with great discussion. So I hope that 
you will consider that. At the $5 level, there's some more perks with uh, articles I write and uh, assets that I upload uh, and that sort of thing. There's also shout outs, voting rights, uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, at the $20 level, um, I will run a game for you, an ongoing once a week campaign game. I'm thinking that will probably be on Monday nights. Uh, so if that is something that you're interested in doing, uh, please support us at the $20 level and we'll get you going pretty much as soon as we get it. Okay. Um, I think I can run a great game for you. So give me a shot. So, uh, with that being said, I'm going to continue, uh, talking about, uh, the, the sort of fundamental theories, the fundamentals of game design. Okay. So here's a vocabulary word for you to 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 use maybe you can enjoy showing off how smart you are to your friends so this is a word called semiotics and semiotics uh are basically uh fancy words that mean symbolism and semiotics can be broken down into two categories parallel and abstract for the most part in a role-playing game we're going to be dealing with with parallel uh semiotics so these are things that have representations in real life. Rolling the D8 and uh, using it for damage to represent a longsword is obviously parallel to the longsword that it represents, right? Our character swings a sword. We've heard of swinging swords in real life. We've heard of casting spells, all these things. Abstract semiotics are things like, you see that more in, let's say, sports, right? So what is a down in football? What even is that? Well, it it's nothing, right? It's whatever a down is as it is defined by the game itself. There's there's not really a parallel uh, line. Even points themselves are, are sort of abstract. So, you know, in, in role-playing games, like in, in fifth edition, you've got sorcery points. There's not really a parallel in real life that like sorcery points are a thing, but there are things like mana, right? And we've seen uh, the the more parallel symbolism used, you know, to draw upon a character's power. Maybe they draw from hit points and it deals damage to them or they become fatigued or exhausted like the uh, frenzy barbarian does. Um, sorcery points kind of do that, but for whatever reasons, um, the designers chose to go with a term like that. So when it comes to rules, we, there's something called meta rules. So there's, there's your next vocabulary word, if you will. I'm, I'm really showing my, my teacher stripes right now. I'm, I'm sorry. You, you, you didn't know that you were going back to high school probably, but it, you know, uh, bear with me, please. I, I, I am passionate about this stuff. So rules about rules. Meta rules are what are the rules that I apply to my rules? What does that mean? So when you create a rule, the first word that probably pops into your head is, is it balanced, right? We would like to create a new spell. We'd like to create a new ability. You know, is it balanced? Is it fair? Okay, so that's a meta rule. Another thing you might think of is, um, is our rules easy to understand, right? Are they clear and uh, and unambiguous and conflict free? You know, as clear as I can be on on a rule, the better. And for the most part, D and D does a pretty good job of 
you know, especially when it comes to their spells and class features, this does this. If there's anything that isn't clear, usually someone has tweeted about it, right? And has sort of explained it further in that way. Uh, but it, let's say you want to um, do some homebrewing on, on your side, right? Ask yourself questions. Is this balanced? Is this clear and unambiguous? Does this apply to players as well as my monsters, right? Um, is this going to, to limit them in sort of unfair ways? So, you know, kind of check yourself, have a set of codes and rules about your own rules. Uh, typically I won't add any kind of rule to the game that makes combat longer. Let's, uh, that's one meta rule that I have. Okay. Uh, I also have a meta rule where, uh, at least I'm going to try to implement this better. No more than 10 enemies on the screen. <laughs> All right. That's just a new rule for me. Um, okay. What is not a game? A game is not necessarily a competition. Certainly when it comes to D and D, this is more of a cooperative thing. You're not, you're not really competing with any other groups. Um, games are not inherently a system of, of rules, right? Obviously if it was just a symbol of rules, uh, uh, or a, a system of rules, sorry, then, the Ten Commandments would be a game, right? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Uh, games are also not inherently entertaining or fun. Uh, certainly, we've all played educational games in the past that weren't that fun, and uh, but they were still technically games. They still fit the definitions. I don't know how much that's going to help you right now, but it's in my lecture, and I thought it would be interesting to share with you. Um, so just because something is a game doesn't mean that you're that you're creating fun. And I think that is ultimately sort of the goal that we're going for. We want to create this sense of fun. We want our players to come away entertained, uh, perhaps emotionally drained or uh, at least um, invoked in some way. We want them to be inspired. We're looking for some sort of reaction. Typically that reaction is some form of fun or entertainment. Um, but that, but that you designed a game does not, um, guarantee that you achieve that, obviously, right? Certainly there are many games out there that some would find fun and you would not. Okay. So that's also why it's very important to, to know your players and to imagine what they themselves might enjoy, which is a difficult task because your players often want different things. You can have two people that enjoyed mass effect and you ask them why, and they would disagree very much about why they liked it right and then we talked a more about that when we discussed bartle's taxonomy in, a, in an earlier episode so i would check that out if you'd like to know more about player types so if you have a little bit of time you know maybe you're in the car and you'd like to take a pause from listening to my voice um consider pausing and you know make yourself a little challenge like see if you can do an exercise with me identify the requirements for something to be a game so think about the the stuff that I've talked about in this episode. What comprises a game, and then make something um, make something into a game. So I think about school, and school is not inherently a game, but I do try to think about ways that I can use game design in it. Right? How can I apply the the rules of game to the educational scenario to make it a little bit more engaging and interesting? And I would say, you know, take a pause and think about how you can transform whatever it is you're doing today into a game that at the very least fulfills that those definitions that contains those uh, 
those essential elements of play, pretending, uh, goal, and rules. Think about that, and then when you have an idea, you can you can unpause perhaps, or you can just ignore this and keep going. Okay, so now I want to talk about gameplay, and then this is very important when talking about the very basic fundamentals and this will be the last topic i I kind of bring up and and explore so gameplay what is that how do i know that i'm engaging my players into gameplay well obviously you follow the rules i don't have to think about that right well bear with me stick stick with me a little bit gameplay consists of the challenges that a player must face to arrive at the object of the game gameplay is also the actions that a player is permitted to take to address those challenges. So what gameplay is at its most fundamental level is the relationship between actions and challenges. What actions can I take to overcome challenges? What kind of challenges can I present players where they can, in an interesting way, sort of use actions to overcome? Ask yourself the question when you're prepping your next session, is this providing gameplay? How much time are you spending just explaining things, just giving Uh, exposition? Is there something that the player is doing? Are you clearly prompting them when it's their turn to do something for them to do that thing? If they don't engage in a way that's that's satisfying, you know, you've been clear and you followed all your little meta rules, then what is the outcome? Is there a consequence? Should there be one? I think there should be, right? So even if you're having a social interaction with an NPC, there should be an element of gameplay here and ask yourself, what is the action? What is, what is the challenge? What are the possible actions? Uh, there are probably going to be far more actions than there are challenges. And that's part of the fun of the game, right? You get to pick which of the tools in your tool belt you would like to apply to this given situation. And that changes the way the, the game and story unfold over time. So quick definition of a challenge. It's any task set for a player, which is non-trivial to uh, accomplish, right? So I wouldn't say uh, getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth and taking a shower is a challenge. Well, okay, maybe getting up in the morning is uh, a little bit hard, but the rest should be pretty straightforward, right? And and those things are still trivial, right? What is something non-trivial that I can do that requires some degree of mental and physical effort? Um, So at the very least, that's a challenge. Again, that's not inherently fun or entertaining, but it needs to at least be challenging. We really like to solve problems. And I know I, I, I kind of picked on the younger generation earlier, so let me give them a little credit here. And really, this applies to everyone. I, I don't think there really are that many people that are truly lazy. I, I think I have met a couple, but for the most part, I find people that aren't necessarily lazy, but they aren't disengaged. They are just not interested in what you have to to offer. And certainly as a teacher, I see that a lot, right? Because um, even in, in classes, that I think are very interesting, very fun. Certainly there's a lot of people there that, that don't have the same view and they'd much rather be doing something else. The, the, the issue is not that people are lazy. The issue is that they're being engaged in ways in which they're not interested. Once you get them in that situation where they are interested, it works out a lot better. You know, if I if I sit my daughter down to play D&D and I'm teaching her the game, she's got about two good hours in her. Right. After that, I start seeing a lot more yawning. I see a lot more disengagement. She's just young. I don't think she can play for that long yet. Right. 
but if you but if I stick her uh, into a more physical, outdoorsy, cooperative activity that has a social element, you know, she can do that for a much, much, much longer time. She likes to explore. She likes to see the world. She likes to interact with animals. These are things that she can do for very long periods of time, uh, which are not <laughs> always as interesting for me. Um, different types of challenges that you can consider uh, uh, are basically recurring, unique, and continuing. Uh, these are three sort of broad definitions. So a recurring challenge is something like uh, killing bad guys, um, perhaps even identical bad guys, and using uh, your the same sort of typical means in which to sort of dispatch them. One good thing about 5th edition is that there's really not that many rules to memorize in terms of accomplishing most combats. But one of the downsides of 5th edition is the same thing, right? So a lot of the monsters uh, tend to be dealt with in very similar ways, and there's not always these really unique mechanics that you see with, with each monster, uh, which is something that they kind of make better in in books like Volos and in Mordekainen's, but... Um, you know, in the, in the base book, there is a lot of monsters that just sort of hit hard, have armor class, you know, um, it's kind of too bad. I hope that, uh, when we get into uh sixth edition, we see m- more of a variety of not, you know, not just gimmicky or, or novel monsters though. Certainly. Yes. Those things too. Um, because we do want, you know, we don't want monsters to be impossible, you know, under certain conditions, but I do like the idea of them being different and, and being able to interact with them uh, in a, in a more meaningfully different way, let's say, but we can present our players with lots of recurring challenges, and this can actually be useful to sort of reward them for recognizing patterns. So if, you know, there's often trip wires, that's okay. Cause they can start quickly recognizing and looking for them and getting over them and getting past them. If there's a lot of, let's say goblins on the way to the more interesting boss, that's okay. Just don't waste too much of their time with that. Let them get through the recurring challenge quickly because uh most um most of the time we don't want to um perform a test we've already proven uh other fun uh, recurring challenges we often see in games are you know achieving goals or uh gathering resources you know sort of the stuff you you kind of do over and over and over again uh unique challenges of course i find much more interesting these are, are typically boss battles in video games in D D. In similar games, we actually can fill up a lot more of our time with unique challenges. Really no need to do like your trash mobs on your way to the boss. We can kind of skip that. They help illustrate that maybe your boss has a lot of influence or or power or followers. They can also sort of bog down things. I like for every room in a dungeon to feel different and to have something different to offer. Um, this, this isn't as necessary in video games because combats go quickly. You get to do flashy moves. Part of the entertainment is sort of the art and animation, but we don't necessarily have the same thing in D and D. So it's, I think it's better to keep things sort of moving. Um, but not only do we have like unique enemies that maybe have unique mechanics, but all those situations can have uh, unique, uh, you know, objectives, which is something we talked about earlier, right? Is it about stopping the ritual or getting the item or rescuing the kid or 
you know, saying the magic words in time, whatever it is, um, you know, these help create more unique challenges. Uh, the last one I'll, I'll talk about is continuing, um, which, you know, probably won't come up as often. It's something that you're doing constantly all the time. One thing I would say to, to players, like one example would be like in basketball, like you're constantly dribbling the ball and it's not quite trivial. Uh, especially if you have someone who's opposing you, which is almost all the time. In D&D, it's a little bit tricky because we actually get a lot of downtime. We got a lot of time to plan. But that's, I think, where the importance of the continuing challenge is. Always be engaging. Always be planning. Because, let's face it, this whole talk has largely been directed towards uh, to GMs. But for as far as players go, you should be mentally trying to engage with the game when it isn't your turn, right? And you should be trying to think about what not you know, what is my next move, but also what do I feel about it? Do I have any dialogue coming up? You can always be planning. You can always be preparing and that can be your continuing challenge during the, during the uh, course of the, of the session and maybe even after. So, you know, this idea of, of having different types of challenges um, is kind of how I approach dungeon design or wilderness travel itself uh, because essentially what you have is an obstacle course. Um, dungeons and wilderness travel with like uh, your your random encounter table. These are all, these are all obstacle courses. They ha- they are a big challenge with little challenges throughout them. Right. Your goal is to get from point A to point B. That is a challenge. But during those points, there's all these sub points where hopefully we're, we're dealing with fairly unique and, and different non-trivial challenges that have engaging ways to overcome them. Uh, Optional challenges are things that I'm a big fan of. Obviously we've been talking about options already uh, throughout the course of, of this talk um, and why having options in themselves are almost inherently more fun. Uh, But, you know, things like side quests are things that we often uh, consider and, you know, try not to draw, too much from video games because again video games have the benefit of letting you a single player be constantly engaged all the time which is part of why they're so addictive um you know you can you can perform the same 10 actions sort of over and over and over again like you do in say an assassin's creed game where really there's only like six kinds of quests and you do each of them like a hundred times essentially until you're finally tired of it. But these are things that can help the player practice. Um, if you have a side quest in in a game like D&D, I would highly recommend it being very story driven, very much about getting a magic item or a big thing or, you know, some sort of big plot clue or a personal tie in with the character's backstory. You know, these are good opportunities to use these optional quests that aren't necessarily part of completing the main plot, but um, are not insignificant anyway. Um, these uh, optional challenges can also provide meaningful incentives. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm running over a little bit here, but I want to talk about actions. So the other half of the gameplay um, recipe, if you will. So actions are stuff players can do to overcome challenges. So in in a lot of popular games, 
pretty much, you know, think about the different skills and actions you can generally perform. So a lot of games allow you to shoot stuff. Maybe you have different guns so that they shoot things differently, but for the most part, they shoot. You can probably jump. Maybe you can climb. Maybe you can sprint versus walk. Maybe you can duck, crouch, maybe go into sneak mode. All of these things, right? When it really comes to like elegant game design, elegant meaning very efficient, um, what that would be is being able to do a lot with few actions, right? If my brain doesn't have to retain like a, a thousand things that my character can do, but if I can retain the five things my character can do and I can apply them to lots of situations to solve problems or combine them in interesting ways, then that then that is good design for the most part, right? At least in theory. Uh, different types of actions. Um, there's allowed. So stuff you can by option do if you wish. There are prohibited actions, things you're absolutely not allowed to do. And then there are required actions. Here's the thing that you absolutely must do all the time. And I probably don't need to go in and, and really talk about what those mean. But, um, you know, something to think about. Um, so again, just kind of bringing this all to an end. Gameplay is the, uh, the action challenge relationship. That's really the, the essence of it. And so one thing I would challenge you to do in, in, uh, as, as you go in towards your next game is look at a scene that you've prepared and ask yourself, you know, is there engagement here? Is there gameplay here that is happening or, or are we just watching me, the GM you're watching me in all my glory and aren't I wonderful and aren't I clever and don't I know a lot, right? Is your player doing something other than listening? In fact, right now you're listening to my show. I'm not being terribly engaging at the moment, ironically, but hopefully, uh, you know, you're doing your chores or driving or something. So uh, you have no choice but to do uh, much else but listen. But if you are just listening to me, then maybe consider doing some of these challenges. Jot down uh, a few notes and think about how you want to apply some of these ideas into your next session. I think really examining fundamentals of game design is a good way to elevate us. No matter how good of a storyteller you are, this is a mixed medium. This is storytelling but it is also gameplay. It's also game design. So keep those things in mind as you go in. Trying to think of how Andrew typically closes out these episodes. I guess once again, I'll remind you that uh, our website is inspirationpoint.buzzsprout.com. You can download all of our episodes there. We have many. Uh, you can also catch us on other places like Stitcher and Spotify and anywhere else that you can pretty much find uh, a podcast. So please check us out wherever is convenient for you. Please share this uh, show with your friends. Tell somebody, tell somebody about it. At the very least, there's probably an episode that they might find useful, even if they don't play these types of role-playing games. And certainly if they do play them, I think we have something valuable to say. Uh, again, you can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash inspiration point. Please support us at the one five or twenty dollar level depending on your means and your time and all that good stuff finally i would like to thank our beloved patrons spike kate logan and Gore. thank you we love and appreciate you so 
Until next time, stay inspired.